If you have a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, if you could open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or if you have a bulletin this morning, it'll be on the inside leaflet. Once you get there, if you could rise with us for the honoring of the public reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So reads God's holy and inerrant word. Church, please be seated this morning. We're going to be looking at this portion of text this morning and looking how hope changes everything. And I want you to engage with me a little bit this morning. And I want you to think about hope. What hope does the world give to you? I heard some people say none. I heard somebody say temporary. A temporary hope is not a hope, right? That is not the hope we're looking for. As a matter of fact, our public schools teach us that we are accidents. That there was no intention, no purpose for our lives. That we are products of an evolutionary chance system. That's what we're taught. We're alive today and in the dirt tomorrow. That there's no future. There's no hope. Those of us here this morning, we can attest to the fact that life comes at us from all different directions, doesn't it? All kinds of circumstances, situations, difficulties, challenges, disappointments, they're unavoidable. Everywhere we turn, we come out of one and walk right into another one. There's some other challenge, some other difficulty, some other disappointment in life. Things occur that we'd never planned, things that we'd never imagined, things that we'd never wanted. They happen. But in all of life's circumstances, we find ourselves lacking in a lot of different areas. We could be lacking in companionship. We could be lacking in funds, with money. We could be lacking in health. We could be lacking in direction. But do you know what the most miserable condition that any of us can find ourselves in? Lacking in hope. Lacking in hope. Hopelessness. Hopelessness is a cancer of the soul. To be without hope, what's next? Is there any way out of this? And I will tell you this morning that all of us, to all of us, there is hope. There is hope. Hope changes everything. 
But for some of us, we use that word hope so loosely that we truly don't understand what hope is. For example, we might say, I hope things get better. What does that mean? I hope things get better. It's saying, I really would desire for things to get better. I hope. Or we would say something, I hope you feel better. I really would desire for you to feel better. But there is a hope that is much, much better. The type of hope that changes everything. And we find this hope in the Bible. The biblical definition of hope is confident expectation. Confident expectation. That I can be assured that this is going to take place. That I can be sure that this is going to happen. That I don't just really desire it, but I have assurance of it. Confident expectation is way better than wishful thinking. Regardless of what sufferings you may have endured, excuse me, may have endured, regardless of what sufferings you have endured, great hope is found in the gospel. Great hope. I'm so glad you are here this morning to hear a message of great hope. Because regardless of where we turn in life, like I said, there are challenges, difficulties, disappointments. But when we turn to God, there is hope. And that's what this message is about this morning. If you look at the text with me again, in the first four verses, it's the Apostle Paul writing. Let's look at the verse three verses. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For as I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If you are taking notes this morning, the first point we're going to look at is there is hope in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, no matter the suffering that you are enduring, there is hope in the gospel. We see in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel that I preach to you. He says, by which you are being saved. He says in verse 3, this gospel says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you think about Christ, what comes to your mind? To each of us, it will be something perhaps different. But how we define Christ and how we think of him defines what type of hope we truly find in him. Do we see Christ as scriptures declare him? Hundreds of years written about the coming Christ, hundreds of years before that, we see in Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Church, that's great hope. This prophesied about the coming Messiah, this being Jesus, the gospel. We hear it all the time. Many of you know, and some of you perhaps don't. The gospel simply means good news. The gospel, good news, it brings hope. What kind of hope? 
How about this? Hope of forgiveness. Let's start there. But that's not all. Hope of purpose. Hope of being reconciled to God. Hope of eternal life with God. Hope of escaping the wrath of God. You know the term saved. This gospel by which you are being saved. What are you saved from? The wrath. We're going to speak about that in a little bit. But we see in verses 1 and 2 that the gospel must be something that is received. It must be received and it must remain active in someone's life. It means we must stand in it. We must hold fast to it as the Apostle Paul says. This is so important. We gather this morning. We come together and say it's Easter morning. Of course it's a great day to go to church. You know, there's another great day that many people will come out to church. Anybody know the other day? Christmas, right? We got a Savior born and we have a Savior risen. Those are great days to celebrate. But what about the other 363 days? It's the same Savior. It's the same glory of God. So when we must stand in the gospel, we must hold it firm, means that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot just be head knowledge. It can't just be something that we understand and agree to. But it must be active. It must be living knowledge in us. We see this beautifully painted out, the gospel picture in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see all different areas of the gospel. It starts off telling us there is bad news. Some people apart from Christ think, you know what, I'm okay. I'm doing okay. I'm not that bad. But look how Ephesians chapter 2 starts off. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I will tell you this, that is not a good way to start off. That when we are apart from Christ, when we are doing our own thing, when we're living life our way, we're dead in our sin. We're not living actively and thinking I'm okay and somehow I'm going to reach out and grab a lifesaver and it's going to pull me up into heaven. It doesn't work that way. We're dead in our sins. The things that we once walked, we see in verse 2. So many of us think we have freedom to go and do and choose as we please. Scripture says that's not true. Apart from Christ, we're following somebody else. We're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, listen. If you are not submitting and following Christ, guess who you are submitting to and following? The enemy of your soul. And so many of us want to stand and deny that. No, I'm free to do as I please. Scripture paints a completely different picture. That we are in bondage to sin, bondage to the enemy of our soul. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what that paints me is, me as the pastor, you as the congregants, we're all in the same boat. There is no difference. That we all, at one time, and for some of us still at this time, are living according to the world's ways, and not according to God's ways. Scripture says at that point, you are dead in your sin. That there is no hope at that point. But, 
Verse 4 starts off with that word. Look at verse 4. But God, here is hope. Here is the hope that changes everything. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Listen. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Stop there. Stop there. You ever tried to love somebody who's unlovable? You ever tried to be kind, to give of yourself of somebody who continues to slap you in the face, continues to mock you, continues to slander you, continues to do the things that you wish they would not do? Guess what? That's us before God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, grace. You get something. I get something I don't deserve. That if I want justice and if I want what's rightly coming to me, it is the penalty for rebelling against a holy and righteous God. But instead, because of God's mercy, because of God's amazing love, I get grace. You get grace. You get mercy. It says in verse 6, by, or end of verse 5, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is painting the picture, church. This is done. This has already occurred. That for the believer, you are seated in the heavenlies. That you have an eternal hope. That you don't have to have wishful thinking that I hope I make it into heaven. I hope that I'll be forgiven in the sense that the world describes hope. But instead, in the way the Bible describes hope, you have a confident assurance that you have an eternal hope. That you have a living Savior. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We can't work our way into heaven. It is a gift of God. And so no one can boast. But look at verse 10 with me. Not only is there this hope, this eternal hope, but there's also purpose. That even my life that I've wasted X amount of years doing stupid and foolish stuff, trying to fulfill my passions, that God can redeem the time and can still use me for his glory. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's done it all. He started, he's going to finish it. He provided the sacrifice. He provided the plan. Now we're to walk in it and trust in it and believe it. He's done it all. Church, there is hope in the gospel. Point number two, we'll move along. Point number two is there's hope in the resurrection. We're talking this morning about resurrection Sunday. Well, there's great hope in the resurrection. In verse four of our text this morning, 1 Corinthians should say 15.4. I think it says 14.4. That is 15.4. It says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with 
the Scriptures. Those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, going through all the life of Christ, looking at all Christ did and say, do you know what one of the most radical things that Christ said over and over again? He said that he would die and would raise on the third day. Who else do you know that would make a claim like that? The reality is any of us could, right? You could say that. But how do we verify whether or not the truth? The reality here is no one in all of humanity ever before him or after him has ever been able to factually state that they would die and then three days later rise from the dead. Some people say, well, Jesus really didn't say that. He didn't really quote that he was going to die and be raised. You know, scholars and preachers always say that, and they misconstrue what the Bible's saying. Well, let me just read it to you then. I won't even teach it. Let me just read it. So Jesus in Matthew 16, 21, just going to read it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Just read the scripture. Next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 17, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now the crazy thing is he kept saying this to them. They had no clue what he's talking about. They hadn't seen anything like that. They have no idea what he's speaking of. Again, the same chapter of Matthew, verses 22 through 23 of Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now they're greatly distressed. He has said it over and over again. What is going on? But he's not done. Again, a few chapters later in Matthew, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Church, listen, this isn't something that like preachers made up. It's not something that some theologian or some scholar made up. It is what Jesus taught, that he would die and that he would rise from the dead. A crazy claim. Because all that he said and all that he did about being the Son of God could have stopped the day that he died if he did not raise from the dead. We most likely would not be here this morning. Otherwise, truly the name of the building would be the Church of the Foolish. That we're gathering to worship a God who said he would live, but yet he died and never came back. But yet we come together because... We have a living hope. Because the tomb was empty. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, listen, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a hope that changes everything. We have a living Savior. We do not come to worship a dead Savior. We have a living Savior in Christ Jesus. When He rose from the grave, He conquered sin. He conquered death.
He defeated the grave. That's a hallelujah. Praise God. Do you realize that the resurrection, all that we believe, its central theme right here is the resurrection. Either it happened or it didn't. Everything we believe hangs on that. If anybody in all history can prove that it didn't happen, guess what? All of Christianity falls to the wayside. And you know what everybody tries to attack all the time? The resurrection. Dateline, CBS, with all these different things coming on. Oh, the latest theory of how Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. Why are they attacking that? Because they know if they can somehow prove that it didn't happen, they take down Christianity. But the reality is, as we saw from our text, there were eyewitnesses all over the place. There were people's lives that were changed radically when they saw the risen Lord. It is mandatory for Christ to have raised from the dead for us to have a living hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul talks about this in verse 17. He says, if Christ had not been raised, listen, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Whew. But, here's another great, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hope, confident assurance, it's happened. We need to understand that believing that Christ not only died for our sins, but raised for our justification is essential for us to have hope and salvation. Many of us are so familiar with Romans 10.9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Anybody tell me what Lord means? It means Master. Means if you say Jesus is the one who I submit to, He is the one who reigns over all things. If you say that and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's two parts of it. You can't say, "Oh, I believe He's He's Lord," but you know what? I'm questionable on the whole resurrection piece. The resurrection is foundational to everything we believe in the claims of Christ. Church, there is hope in the resurrection. Point number three ties right into this because there were eyewitnesses. Point number three is there's hope in the eyewitness accounts. Look at verses 5 through 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. After his resurrection, it says, Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, stop there. Why is that important for him to say? Paul's writing and saying, look, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. And he appeared to over 500 brothers. Most of them are still alive. What do you think the audience could do at that point? Go ask him, right? <laughs> All right. I'm going to see Cephas said yes. The twelve said yes. I'm going to go into this crowd and say, anybody else this really happened? Eyewitness accounts. Do you know in the court of law that we have, eyewitness accounts matters. That someone saw what happened and gave a testimony. We don't just have one. You know, we have some world religions that are based upon one account. I can make up a story. You want to go camping and sit around the fire and I can make up a great story. We have hundreds of eyewitnesses. 
that saw the same thing. And some of you might still question and go, well, okay, wait for it. Lives will be radically changed because of what they saw. When Paul says, look, there are witnesses, over 500. Some have died, but some are still alive. He says, then Jesus appeared to James, to all the apostles, and then speaking of himself, he said, he appeared to me. Why is that important? Because if the resurrection was going to be refuted, it should have been refuted right there on the spot. It was put out there saying, you want to refute it? Go ask a witness. Go ask him. And guess what? None could refute it. Because it couldn't be refuted. As a matter of fact, the resurrected Christ had an amazing impact on people. Put yourself in that position. You witness Christ being murdered on a tree. Giving up his spirit, saying to Telestai, saying it is finished. That the work is done. He's paid the price for all mankind. And he gives up his spirit. What do you assume at that point? He's dead. Good assumption. He is. But what happens if days later, weeks later, a month later, he walks in the room? How is your faith going to change? Right? So I want you to think about this. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes. First, he, he did the Lord's Supper in the upper room, and he goes out to the garden. He prays, asks the Lord if there's any other way to take this from me. He asks the Father. But then he's betrayed, and he gets arrested. And a little squirmish breaks out. But after that, do you know what the response of his followers were? I heard the answer for some of you. Mark 14, verse 50 says this. They all left him and fled. How about that? These guys he's invested years, three years ministering to, loving on, demonstrating grace and mercy to them. In the face of a, a, a adversity, in the face of him being arrested and being tried, they fled. But here's the interesting thing. Those same cowards that fled, those same cowards, later after seeing the risen Christ, were willing to be beaten willing to be imprisoned, and willing to die for their faith in Christ. I ask you, what happened? What happened? Why before did they flee when they saw people coming to arrest and, 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 and to prosecute, but now all of a sudden they say, bring it. I can't but help but to proclaim what I know to be true, what I've seen with my own eyes, that Christ is alive, that he rose from the dead. They went. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They gave their life because they had seen the risen Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Acts 2, Peter gets up and he starts preaching to the crowd after the Holy Spirit has descended. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. They're up there before this whole large crowd, thousands of people, saying, come ask us. We're all witnesses. How does Peter, the one who suffers with, with foot and mouth disease, get up and begin preaching to the crowd, to the multitudes, 
where people get cut to their heart and say, how must we be saved? He was a changed man. Through the power of the Spirit and through the witness of seeing the resurrected Christ, he was a changed man. Many saw the risen Christ. It wasn't the imagination of one individual. It wasn't the imagination of a little group that got together. There were many witnesses. That's the reality. But as you could expect, there was a doubter. There was one who heard Jesus came and showed himself to us, but he wasn't there. Uh, some of you already know his name. Poor guy gets a history of people calling people Doubting Thomas. That's what happens to him. He says, I didn't see it. You guys saw it. I didn't see him. And Peter, or excuse me, Thomas says, unless I see his hands and the mark from the mark on his nails, or from the nails, excuse me, and the place my finger, place my finger into the mark where the nails were, and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never believe. It's Thomas. Unless I get to put, who wants to do that? What kind of request is that? I want to stick my hand in and yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's real. But he wanted to see his flesh and blood. Is it real? Is this really him? And you guys know the rest of the story. Eight days later, guess what? Jesus walks into the room. And in John chapter 20, verse 27 to 28, Jesus turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here and see my hands. And put, you, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And look how Thomas answers. He says, my Lord and my God. He went from doubting Thomas to believing Thomas. The resurrected Christ brought hope. There's hope in the resurrection. My Lord, the one I will submit to. My God, the one who reigns over all things. Church, we have hope in the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. Men who quickly fled from harm's way before Christ was resurrected, all of a sudden were emboldened and courageous to stand and to die for what they had witnessed. We have great hope in the resurrected Christ. We have great hope in the eyewitness accounts. Point number four, our last point this morning. We're going to see that there is hope that no sinner is too far gone. There is hope that no sinner is too far gone. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about the resurrected Christ appeared to Cephas, the apostles, to 500. He says, then to James, then to the apostles again, and then to me. One who was untimely born. He speaks of himself in a very degrading way. We see in verse 9, he says, for I am the least, of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. You know, the reality through all history since Christ rose from the dead, there have been people who have said, but I can't be forgiven. I have done too much. I've sinned willingly against God. I knew better. And there is no point of return. God can't forgive me for what I have done. They think that they have committed the impardonable sin, that they are beyond forgiving. And if that happens to be you this morning, be assured 
but you're not the first, nor will you be the last to ever think that. But we see the Apostle Paul. He was humbled by the fact that God forgave him in Christ. You see, before his miraculous conversion to Christ, Paul was persecuting Christians. That's what he was zealous about, to attacking those who had faith in Christ. We read in Acts that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We read in Acts that he was going home to home and pulling out Christians, male and female, and throwing them in prison. This is Paul the Apostle. By the way, church, when you flip your Bible open and you separate between Old and New Testament, a big chunk of that text was written by this man. God inspired this man to write a lot of this. This man who thought at one point he could be too far gone, as some of you might think, I'm too far gone. I've rebelled against God. I've known better. Paul did it in ignorance. He was zealous for God. He thought this was the right way. And yet he's humbled by the fact that there's forgiveness in God. What do you think about his example? Someone who is murdering and throwing people in prison simply because the name of Jesus. They had done nothing wrong. They received a great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and wanted others to know of that great hope. That's what they were guilty of. Nothing else. You know, it's amazing when you watch a Christian sharing with somebody who's not a Christian, a Christian who is led by the Spirit is pouring out love on them, compassion over them, and the other person's yelling at them. You see it played out. Here are Christians loving on one another, sharing love with with the world, and Apostle Paul comes in seething, angry, and pulling them out of their home. And, well, I said the Apostle Paul. He wasn't the Apostle Paul at the time. He was Saul of Tarsus. But he came in and he pulled them out, home after home, throwing them into jail. Saul, who then later after his conversion became Paul, he hated Christ. And he hated anyone who claimed to believe in Christ. But there's hope not only for him, but there's hope for everyone. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many people think, well, I just need to get cleaned up? There might be even people at home today that said, you know what, it's Easter, I should go to church. But you know what? I'm kind of messed up right now, so I'm not going to make it to church. I've got to wait till I get cleaned up. Here's how God demonstrates his love to us. That while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die on our behalf. Amen. We have to be so sure of the fact that Scripture is clear that we cannot earn our salvation. So you'll think, I need to put on some more good works. I need to get cleaned up. I need to do something better. They think somehow I've got to get to a point where my good outweighs my bad. And I just got to try to do more, try to do more, and hopefully God will forgive me. Reality is, Scripture says, you can't stop. That you're in bondage to sin. And that you can't make up for your past sins. 
I mean, think about it. It'd be foolish to think that somehow I could do enough good to make up for the bad. Think about being in a courtroom. Let's put it in a traffic court. Let's imagine you had a hundred parking tickets. And you went in to the judge knowing you've got a hundred citations against you. But for the last few months as you were waiting for your court appearance, you went to every parking lot you could find. You started putting money in the meters of expiring meters, trying to help other people not get a violation. You said, hey, I'm going to help people. I want to do good. I was a violator. I did what I should have done, but I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to pay other people's meters. Imagine standing before a judge. And judge says, okay, so you're here. You've got 100 outstanding parking tickets. He said, wait, wait, judge. I know that doesn't look good on paper. But let me tell you, here's what's going on the last three months I prepared for today. I've gone to every local parking lot I can find. And every expiring meter, I went and I threw a quarter in that one. Because I want to make up for what I've done. Think about a judge. What kind of reaction do you think a judge would have? Be like, whoa, amazing, that's awesome. Congratulations, you're free to go. Not at all. A judge would probably say, hey, that's great. I'm glad you did that. However, we still have a problem. You still have 100 citations that need to be accounted for. What happens if you decide to go with a different approach? And instead of saying you put money into the meters, you told the judge, you know what? When I realized I had this court date, I stopped getting tickets. Now I go in, the first thing I do is I check, I have quarters. I go in, I stack that meter up with quarters when I, when I park. And I haven't had a, a ticket in three months. I'm doing better now. I've changed my ways. No more tickets. What do you think that judge is going to do? Just going to throw out the violations? Not all. They'll probably say, hey, I'm glad to hear that you've changed your ways, that you're no longer getting parking tickets. That's what you're supposed to do. The problem is you still have 100 violations that are outstanding. See, the Bible is clear that God is a perfect judge. The guy in the courtroom might not be perfect. He might have had a bad night. Who knows which way it's going to go. But God's a perfect judge. And Scripture says he will by no means clear the guilty. That means that none of us get a pass. It doesn't mean he's like, oh, I was, you know, I was tired and you know what, just go. We're all going to give a, an account to a perfect judge. And here's the argument people give. Pastor, the scripture says that God is love. And because he is love, he's going to overlook my violations. He's going to overlook my transgressions. And I would have to argue this. Scripture does say that God is love. We just read about his amazing love. That he loved us so much that he would send Christ to die in our place. That the penalty of our sin had to be paid. Scripture says he is just. Just as much as we would say he's loving, he's also just. And the penalty for our sin must be paid. We have all sinned. And therefore, none of us, on our own merit, deserve heaven. Rather, Scripture says that we deserve the wrath of God that's being stored up for all ungodliness. But this is not a day about wrath. This is a day of hope. That there is hope. And a hope changes everything. According to Romans chapter 4, verse 25, we see that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. For the times we knew that we shouldn't be doing that, and we still went, we did it anyway. 
and he was raised for our justification. Here's what you need to realize. Your sin against God has caused you to have a great debt towards God. There is a penalty, a wage needing to be paid for your sin, and that is death. That is God's wrath. Regardless of how you see it, God is clear that our sin is always against Him. That He sees it as treason against Him who is a holy and righteous King. That we've committed treason. But, we've seen that word a couple times this morning. But, it is a great word of hope. But, but when Christ died, He died in your place. He died to pay the full penalty of all of your sins. That it would be finished, it would be completely paid, that your slate would be washed clean. No more debt. That is glorious news. But the thing is, that's not all. That's when he died. We just celebrate Good Friday, right? Good Friday? But what about Resurrection Sunday? We see in that same verse in verse uh, four or chapter four, verse twenty-five of Romans, that he died for our trespasses, but he was raised for our justification. Let's talk about this real quick. Oftentimes, when we speak of justification, we speak about Christ paid the penalty on our behalf so that we could stand before God just if I'd never sinned. But Scripture declared it's much more than that. That it was the resurrection that purchased our justification. And what that means is the life that Jesus lived in holiness, perfect holiness, in perfect righteousness, was imputed to me, was imputed to you because of his resurrection. That he lived the perfect life, he died, he was raised, so now we can stand before God, not just if I never sinned, but I could stand before God just if I lived a holy and perfect life. Whew! That is a great, great hope. That's a great hope. To live in a manner knowing somebody else went before you. Somebody paid penalty. And someone rose and transferred their righteousness to me. There's great hope in Christ. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus speaking to Martha, he says to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I asked the same question this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that there's hope of forgiveness of sin? and freedom from sin that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? So what must we do to be saved? We started off in this text this morning and we saw that it must be received, that we must stand firm in it, we must hold fast to it. Jesus put it this way, he said, repent and believe. Repent means to turn from living life according to your way according to your standards, and to turn to God, to His way, to submit yourself to God, to turn from sin and turn to God. To believe means to place your hope, to place your trust in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. 
And I challenge with you this morning, we saw in this text, starting off in verses 1 and 2, that there are some who have a head knowledge, but the gospel is not living and active in their lives. They can recite the truth to somebody else that we have a living hope in Christ, but there's no evidence of it in their life. The Apostle Paul says they've believed in vain. We saw that in the opening part of our text this morning. That although they had a head knowledge, they recognized there was truth, that truth had no impact upon their life. There was never genuine repentance and faith. They can go tell somebody else exactly what the Bible says, but it hasn't taken effect in their own lives. There hasn't been genuine salvation in their lives. The reality is this this morning. Christ died for your sins. Christ was raised for your justification. And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no one. And so many of us get into a place, especially on Easter and Christmas, when we say, hey, I'm going to gather together at church. And we say, well, maybe tomorrow I'll make that decision. Maybe tomorrow after I go home and I weigh out everything, make my pros and cons, my list, then I'll make the decision. And guess what? Most never do. If the Spirit of God is drawing you to the realization that you need Christ, that He needs to be Lord and Savior, now is the time. Today is the day that God is calling you to repentance and faith. I urge you, do not ignore the calling. Do not resist the calling. Do not harden your heart to the calling. I urge you this morning, right where you're at, in your heart and mind, cry out. Choose to reckon yourself dead but alive in Christ. That right now you would turn to him and say, you are the living hope. That I have gone and lived life my way, done my thing, and thought I was all that, but I realized this morning that I'm not. And that I need Christ. That I need hope. That I can't keep going through the same cycles that I keep going through and the same discouragements and challenges that keep sending me off course, but instead I need to stand firm today in hope. Friend, turn to him. Trust in Him. Commit to follow Him. And if you genuinely in your heart and your mind, if you genuinely turn to Him this morning, He will give you, Scripture says, a new heart. He'll give you new desires. Those that would desire to love Him, those who would desire to obey Him, that instead of just serving three people, me, myself, and I, you would go and desire to serve God. To have your life redeemed. That although we live so many years in foolishness and waywardness, that today would be the day that God would redeem us and give us purpose and pursuit in bringing Him glory from this day forward. The Bible says that when you do that, that you're a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. and Behold, the new has come. This morning, may it be that you're found in Christ. May it be that you're a new creation, living for God's glory from this moment on. And I'll close with this verse for all of us this morning. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Church, 
believers and friends that are here, we all need hope. We have confident assurance of this kind of hope. That we have a hope in Christ. That we have a living Savior. May we turn and may we bring Him glory in all that we do. May we encourage one another as believers. May we stir up love and good works to bring God glory. God is good. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that we would come here this morning. Again, not to offer our opinions, but to study your truth. God, we look again this morning and see that you truly are a God of amazing love. You are a God of amazing grace. You are a God with amazing patience, excuse me, amazing patience towards us. God, perhaps in this place today, there would be man or woman that would turn to you. Say, God, I believe. God, I turn from my ways. I trust in you. Follow you. God, may today be a day of repentance that the heavens would rejoice as someone turns. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to draw man or woman unto yourself. God, I pray for the believers in this place that we would be encouraged, reminded to stand firm in the gospel. That if we're to preach the gospel, we're to preach it to ourselves as well, to remember at all times the good news, that we have a Lord, that we have a Savior who is living, one who died for our sins but was raised for our justification, that we have confidence that we stand in Him, in His righteousness, in His goodness. God, to you be the glory, now and forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name.